As you'll probably have guessed, we'll be returning today to the Psalms of Ascent. So take a moment to turn to Psalm 120. I thought about skipping this uh, next part, but I was listening to a podcast the other day, and it changed my mind. It happened to be about business, which, um, despite my best efforts, has become a significant part of my life. The speaker was talking about communication within your team and warning leaders against the fear of repetition, especially when trying to instill the basic values and motivations of a company's mission. It's easy to feel like a broken record, he said, but the repetition drives those most important concepts into the hearts and minds of the team members. If your team can give your speeches back to you word for word, then maybe they're getting the picture. After all, he said, when your teenage kid's parting words as he heads out for the evening are, I know, Dad, I know. Don't get drunk, don't do drugs, don't have sex, wear my seatbelt, obey the speed limit, and don't text and drive. Then you are probably doing something right. God himself is our greatest example of this. In creation, he says that he set the sun and the moon in place to rule the day and the night, and the stars to mark out the signs and the seasons. Hebrew culture is filled with repetition of rituals and festivals, and indeed the reading of scripture. In Deuteronomy 31... 10 through 13, Moses addresses the people of Israel. He knows that he's about to die, and they are about to cross the Jordan into the promised land. And he gives them this command. Then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men and the women and children, and the alien who is in your town, so that you may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law. Their children, who have not known, will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. Likewise, Christ gave us the Lord's Supper, which we have just repeated, saying, Do this in remembrance of me. And... For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Most of us can repeat that part from memory simply because we have heard it read time after time. So with that in mind, let us review the nature of these songs of ascent that we will stand and read, and then we will stand and read them together. You will recall, I hope, that the Psalms of Ascent are a collection of 15 psalms that all bear the same note at the beginning. Shir Hama'alot. A Psalm of Ascent. They begin at Psalm 120 and continue through 134. Most of them don't name an author, but four are ascribed to David and one to Solomon. The common understanding is that these songs were sung on the road to Jerusalem during three pilgrimage festivals. Pesach, or Passover, which celebrated God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, which celebrated God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. And Shavuot, and uh, Sukkot, which we have just mentioned, the Feast of Booths, which celebrated God's provision during the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness. These were times when the heads of Israel's households were told to travel to Jerusalem to make different kinds of sacrifices at the tabernacle and later the temple that Solomon would build. You can find the command in Deuteronomy 16.16. And you will remember that Jerusalem stands on a hill, or rather a cluster of hills, surrounded by other taller hills, including the Mount of Olives. 
But Jerusalem stands apart because it is completely surrounded by deep valleys. So however one approaches the city, he will be going up or ascending. This made it a very defensible fortress, and it also led to the common phrase, going up to Jerusalem. Thus the songs for traveling toward Jerusalem to worship at the temple are known as the Psalms of Ascent. And as I have mentioned before, some scholars have suggested that there may have been a ritual singing of these songs on the 15 steps leading up to the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount stands on the eastern side of the city, where it looks down into the Valley of Hinnom, and then up to the Mount of Olives. The Temple has several gates, but the one on this route seems to be a common approach to the Temple and to the city. The gate was long ago sealed with stones, but there are still 15 ancient steps there leading up to the ancient wall. And there it is speculated the Israelite pilgrims would pause to sing their Shirot Hama'alot. Whether they did this individually or corporately, we don't know. We don't really know if they did it at all. But I like the idea, particularly the idea of them stopping out there in the dust and the sun with the dwelling place of God rising above them as a literal fortress and refuge and singing these 15 hymns all together as a set. Since I only speak to you a few times a year, Let's pretend this is another pilgrimage festival and read these psalms aloud together. So if you'll stand up. Keeping in mind that image of coming up from the valley of Hinnom and standing on the hillside below the city gate and preparing to ascend to the Temple Mount. In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows, with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as we decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. 
our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evil doers. Peace be upon Israel. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blesses the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. 
we bless you in the name of the Lord. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord, more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed, I will not give sleep to my eyes, or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place, and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. This, is the third, this will be the third Psalm of Ascent that we've studied together, and I have finally realized what the obvious title of this series should be. Sorry, Dave. We ought simply to call it Approaching God, because that's what the Psalms of Ascent are all about. 
As we have seen, their subjects vary. Deliverance, past, present, and future. Prayers for help, prayers for peace. Delight in relationship with God. Delight in the unity of Israel. Remembrance of God's faithfulness to his people. But individually and as a whole, they present a picture of the people of God going up to meet him in the place that he has chosen. First, we studied Psalm 124. If it was not for the Lord that was with us, let Israel please say, If it was not the Lord that was with us when men came up against us, then they would have devoured us alive in the burning of their noses against us. Then the waters would have flooded over us, the torrent would have passed over on top of our souls. Then would have passed over on top of our souls the waters, the insolent ones. Blessed be the Lord who gave us not prey into their teeth. Our souls like the birds slipped away from the snare of the bait layers. The snare is broken and we have slipped away. Our help is in the name of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. This song reminded us to come to God remembering, looking back at the Ebenezers of his past faithfulness and trusting him to be faithful in our lives going forward. Then we looked at Psalm 123. Unto you I lift my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servants to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease with the contempt of the proud. Here we saw the importance of coming to God with upturned eyes a right perspective toward his nature and position in this situation, understanding who he is in relationship to us and to all of creation, offering reverence and recognition for our need of mercy. Today I want to look at a psalm that follows closely on the heels of that concept. Psalm 130 teaches us to come to God seeking and expecting redemption. Let me read it to you from the Hebrew English Bible. Psalm 130, a psalm of ascents. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his, that is Israel's, iniquities. Now I promise I don't do this on purpose. I just read through the Psalms and see which one knocks something loose. But it occurred to me as I was working on this Psalm of Ascents that it fits rather nicely with the other messages we heard this month. Dave discussed God's wrath and judgment toward those who ignore the two primary commandments, to love God with all of our beings and to love our fellow image bearers as ourselves. Mike walked us through the story of God's grace toward the rebellious Jonah and the contrite Ninevites. And Tom brought our focus to the centrality of God and his character in the life and work of Christ who ultimately achieved our redemption from iniquities. All of these themes and concepts run clearly through Psalm 130. As always, I will begin by discussing the poetry of the psalm. These are, after all, songs, and they rise out of the poetic culture of Hebrew. And this is part of what sets psalms apart from other kinds of scriptures. You will recall that Hebrew poetry works with a set of tools that is somewhat different from Western poetry. 
Much of the Western tradition relies on rhyme schemes and patterns of syllables and accents. Hebrew poetry deals mainly in imagery, metaphor, simile, and various kinds of repetition, including sometimes very complex interactions between words and thoughts, and even sounds. Often key words play a large part, as well as sometimes elaborate imagery, as we'll see today. The most important thing to look for when you read Hebrew poetry is that interaction. The Hebrew language lacks the strict subject, verb, object forms we find in English. Words and phrases instead interplay with each other. Parallelism is a common structure in Hebrew literature, as we've seen in other psalms. It's based on a kind of evolving repetition of ideas. Lines interact with each other by repeating uh, words or reiterating the sense of a line that went before and then adding to it in some way. Comparison and contrast play their parts as well. So keep that in mind as we look at this poem. Watch for the interactions. One element of Hebrew poetry, though, that we'll find familiar is the stanza, as we've seen before. If you look at our poem today here, you can pretty quickly break it into three main sections of two verses each, or four main sections of two verses each, rather. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. One stanza. Then stanza two. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. And finally, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy. And with him is abundant redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. One thing that we notice as we read through that time is the appearance of the word Lord. I said we're going to look at some key words. Uh, You'll recall that the capitalization in English of the word Lord gives us a clue to the original Hebrew. When it appears in all caps, we're dealing with the name of God, the Tetragrammaton, which refers to the one and only creator God and is held in such reverence by the Jewish people that its precise meaning and pronunciation has been lost to history because They refuse to say it aloud. When Lord appears with only a capital L, it denotes another more common word. In this case, in this psalm, all the other uses of the word Lord are Adonai, which means simply my master, a title that shows the relationship between the speaker and the one to whom he speaks. The pattern of these two names of God becomes the unifying element in these four poetically diverse stanzas. In the first three stanzas, we find first the name of God and then his title, Yahweh Adonai, Yahweh Adonai, Yahweh Adonai. And then in the last stanza, Yahweh, Yahweh. Through this unifying pattern, we see the focus of the psalmist on the Lord, both in his unique person and his role as master, which we explored quite thoroughly in Psalm 123. This is our first clue to the point, as it were, of this poem. This is a song primarily about God, his nature, and his interaction with us. Keep that in mind as we go along. Within that context, also pay attention to the different uses of repetition and interaction between lines and verses and stanzas. We will see an unfolding of ideas, a building from simple to complex, and an evolution from the supplicant sinner to the ransomed people of God. I'll point out some of the poetic devices along the way, but this psalmist uses so many variations that it would be easy to get bogged down 
in the technical details, and I want to focus on the message of this poem and its example of how we ought to approach Almighty God as we come into his presence to worship. Stanza 1, verses 1 and 2. Out of the depth I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. You see the unfolding, the building, the repetition. The psalmist is approaching God out of the depths, calling for the attention of Jehovah, his master. I would normally give you some historical background at this point, but we don't really have any. The psalmist is not named. Neither the text nor any strong tradition suggests the historical context of this poem. We do have a powerful image of the psalmist's personal context, though. The depths. The depths have a definite presence in Hebrew uh, tradition, referring to anguish, hopelessness, and despair. We have often seen the image of those who go down to the pit or are swallowed by the deep. um, It's possibly an image of the sea, as we saw in Jonah, Jonah 2, 1b to 3a. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the sea. Psalm 130 may, in fact, be a direct allusion to Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish, or vice versa, since we don't know which was written first. The psalmist may even be Jonah himself. We don't know. But in any case, we here have our starting point, despair. Out of the depths I cried, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. So why is he so blue? The last word of of stanza one gives us our first hint and the first introduction to the message of this psalm. Supplication. The word means specifically to petition for favor. Not much on its own, but but we're approaching our psalm as a poem, a cohesive thought from the mind of a poet that in the Hebrew style interacts from line to line and verse to verse and stanza to stanza. This is not a random collection of statements as the chapters of Proverbs sometimes seem to be. This is a single composition. So we look to stanza two and we find a very good reason to be petitioning for favor. Stanza two, verses three and four. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Here we find another type of unfolding thoughts, using contrast rather than repetition. But it builds on the concept of supplication. It adds complexity, expanding our understanding of the psalmist's plight, expanding that plight to include all of us, and revealing several key aspects of the nature of God. Not bad for two verses. This stanza is, in my opinion, the core and crux of Psalm 130, on which our understanding most depends. First, in verse 3, If you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? From supplication to iniquities. To me, at least, the implied connection seems perfectly clear. There are two possible root words for the term iniquities. One means to bend or pervert something that is straight. The other means to stray or deviate from the right path. Two images with a strong commonality of meaning. Whatever the original image, in its usage, the word has a strong connection to the concept of guilt. It does not simply refer to the action of sinning, but also to the character of that action. Thus we have in Psalm 32.5 a reference to the iniquity of my sin. If you, Yahweh, should mark our guilt, O Master, who could stand? The implied answer, no one could stand. 
The concept of guilt necessarily derives from a concept of justice, an attribute of God that the psalmist seems to take for granted. In the face of God's justice, we all would be found guilty, morally corrupted, perverted, or errant from the path. And when guilt meets justice, the natural expectation is, of course, punishment. Verse 4, But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. This seems to be the most problematic verse of this psalm in English. So, not to bore you all with linguistics, which I'm told is greatly out of style these days, but I would like to, to look briefly at three key words in this verse. The first is forgiveness. I will say it in the original, in the original only because it will be familiar to anyone who has visited the modern state of Israel. The word is selicha. A variation in modern Hebrew usage means basically, sorry, excuse me, or perhaps, best of all, pardon me. And it is one of the first and best words that a foreigner can learn in that language. Like all of those English translations, it functions most commonly as a social nicety. If you bump into someone, interrupt their conversation, or need their attention, you say, slicha. But also, like English niceties, it derives from a more serious root. When we say, pardon me, we may be seeking forgiveness for a trivial offense, like stepping on someone's foot. But say that a man was pardoned, and we hear a graver message. So it is with Selicha. The phrase, but there is pardon with you, continues from the concept of guilt, which deserves punishment. But instead, the psalmist says God offers the opposite. This creates a logical tension. God is just, we are guilty, we cannot stand before his righteous wrath. Yet instead, we receive pardon. Why would he do that? That you may be feared. This line is actually just two words. That is one word, and you may be feared is another. The first, translated that, would better be expressed by the phrase, in order that. It's a preposition that is a clear statement of cause. It tells us that whatever comes next is the answer to the question, why? It's a causational line. In order that you may be feared. Forgive me now, Stikha. This is the deepest word study that we're going to do today. It is justified, I think, because this is the least clear word in the English translation of the poem. You may be feared. Comes from a very common word, but in this case, it appears in a very rare form. It actually appears in this exact form only once in all of Scripture. The basic word is best translated as the simple verb fear, as in to be afraid of, which is why it is often translated that way. But you'll um, notice that other translations translate it differently. One says, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. That captures a little more of the thought, but it adds a little too much interpretation for my taste. Not to mention the violence that it does to the poetry. To get a truer sense of the word, we cannot look at other uses of it because there are none. But it, is a it has a close sibling, a fraternal twin of this word, that can give us a clearer sense of this thought. We find it in Deuteronomy 7.21 and Nehemiah 1.5, among other places. Deuteronomy 7.21, once again the Israelites have finished their 40 years in the wilderness, and Moses is giving them his final admonitions before he dies and hands the reins to Joshua. He warns them that the inhabitants of the land may seem insurmountable. 
powerful and unconquerable. But he says, Do not be terrified by them, for the Lord your God who is among you is a great and awesome God. Then in Nehemiah 1.5, the prophet has just heard of the distress of the people and the state of Jerusalem's broken down walls and gates. After grieving and fasting, Nehemiah begins his prayer to God. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all those who love him and keep his commandments. The word we're interested in is, you guessed it, awesome. Our great and awesome God. And we're talking about the original definition of awesome, not the California version. In this form, the verb to be feared is best translated to inspire reverence, godly fear, and awe. If you, Yahweh, should address your justice to our guilt, O my master who could stand, but there is pardon with you, in order that you may inspire awe. Well, you say, I mean, Titus, we kind of got it from the other translations, right? But no, I don't think so. I've gone to all this trouble over this word because of what comes next in stanza three. God gives us pardon rather than punishment in order that he may inspire awe in us. Look to verses five and six, and we find an image of that awed response in the experience of the psalmist. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. Once again, you see the unfolding of thoughts, the repetitions, the parallelism, the imagery. And the key word, waits. My soul waits. In this form, it's best translated to look eagerly. I look eagerly for Yahweh. My soul looks eagerly, and in his word I do hope. Here we find the source of all the psalmist's bold statements about Jehovah, his master. How does he know all this about the nature of the unique being who is the almighty God? He knows because God told him. The psalmist speaks into a Hebrew culture which is most purely defined by that Levitical law that Moses commanded the Israelites to read to their children every seven years, and that he commanded that their eventual king should study day by day. The Levitical law is littered with these concepts. Supplication, guilt, justice, and the inspiration of awe, and yes, even forgiveness. The Old Testament law gets a bad rap in modern society as nothing but a list of supposedly trivial offenses which were to be punished by stoning. This view is so appallingly ignorant as to be infuriating to listen to, simply, primarily because it displays absolutely no understanding of the law as a whole. The Levitical system was given to move the children of Abraham into a mode of living that made it clear to them the nature of God and the universe, specifically that God is just, that we are guilty of transgressing that justice, and that they therefore deserve wrath. And as we see clearly in the psalm, that he offers pardon. I look eagerly for Yahweh, my soul looks eagerly, and in his word I do hope. These are not the words of a man weighed down by a crippling system of legalism and rampant stoning at the command of a pitiless God. As I have often seen the Old Testament portrayed by comedians riffing on the supposedly ludicrous limitations of personal and especially sexual freedom that it prescribes. In case we haven't got it yet, 
the psalmist continues offering one of the most clear and powerful images that I personally have encountered in the scriptures. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. More than those who watch for the morning. I don't know about you, but that image speaks to me. In college, I had a tendency to take on a frankly ridiculous load of coursework. I would add or simply audit pretty much any class that I thought sounded interesting. This habit reached an apex in the second semester of my junior year, when I had arranged my classes in such a way that it required me to pull an all-nighter three days a week in order to get all my work done. Then after college, because apparently I'm a slow learner, I spent half a year as a night watchman in San Francisco. My roommate told me later it was like watching someone slowly going mad. I didn't notice, but I suppose that's the nature of madness. The point is, I've been among those who watch for the morning. And I can tell you, even the term looking eagerly does not do justice to that feeling. Even for someone who has made it a daily part of their routine, the last hours, even the last moments before dawn can be among the coldest, the loneliest, indeed the most desperate that the average person can expect to encounter. In those moments, all my focus, every ounce of my attention was bent to the task of searching the dark sky for the first sign of daylight. Because dawn is hope. And even if it only means you get to go home and sleep, seeing the arrival of a new day after a long and wakeful night can be sublimity itself. Awe is not too strong a word at all. That is the intensity with which our psalmist looks to the Lord in expectation of an answer to his supplication for forgiveness. And not just his supplications, but those of all God's people, as we see in stanza 4, verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now at last we reach the full complexity of the psalmist's thought and a full understanding of the model he offers us in approaching our God. With him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all iniquities. These words do not only expand the scope of promised forgiveness to include all of God's people, they also reveal the mechanism by which that forgiveness is given. We have already answered the question, why would a just God offer forgiveness? But there remains the deep question, the deeper question, how can a just God forgive iniquities? If he allows the guilty to escape punishment, how can he still be just? In a word, redemption. It comes from a root meaning to ransom, and it is, of course, the key to understanding this system of justice, guilt, and forgiveness. Naturally, we understand this looking back from this side of the death life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and with hundreds of pages of New Testament to explain it to us. What I find remarkable is the fact that the psalmist knew it, and it affected the example that he laid down for approaching God. Hope in the Lord, and he shall ransom Israel from all iniquities. The psalmist understood, we see it clearly, that he would be forgiven by means of ransom. His guilt would be paid by someone else, and that person is Yahweh. Even faithful New Testament believers can fall into the error of viewing the Old Testament system 
of animal sacrifice as essentially equivalent to the sacrifices of other cultures. It simply was not. The priests of Baal in ancient Canaan shed their own blood. The worshippers of Molech committed their wailing infants to the flames. And mine priests cut out the hearts of living virgins all for the same reason, in hope of imposing their own wills upon their imaginary gods. They wanted the rain to fall or stop falling, the crops to grow or the battle to go their way. They went to their temples in horror and dread, hopefully at least for some in revulsion. Nothing could be further from the manner and motivation and purpose that we see in Psalm 130. By this example, among many others, we see that Old Testament believers had access to all the same concepts that we have for understanding salvation. The psalmist came to the temple crying out not for rain, but forgiveness of his personal guilt. He came not in terror, but with an awe that was inspired by his understanding of that forgiveness. He came in hope because of the word of revelation that God had given him. He came in full expectation that his guilt would be pardoned and ransomed by his great and awesome God. We serve that same God and we come to him in that same manner. It has become routine among some people to refer to the God of the Old Testament as though he were distinct from the person revealed by Christ and his followers. He is not. Here we see that he is the same God. He is still just. We are still guilty. He still offers pardon through ransom. And so, like the psalmist and the Israelites going up to Jerusalem for the pilgrimage festivals, we may approach God understanding and confessing our iniquities, hoping in his word, and by that hope, asking him for redemption. And best of all, thanks to the finished work of Christ who died and rose in order to perfectly and totally ransom all of our iniquities, we can come in full confidence that the Lord will hear the voice of our supplications and he will forgive us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can come to you in our guilt, in our confession, and in our repentance. And thank you for the power of your redemption. That we can be confident through the work of Christ that we will be forgiven as you have promised. In your name I pray, amen.